Hi there, we're going to listen to Jerry Spence. How to win. Argue and win every time with theta frequency. <laughs> Pick up your free gifts without any qualifying This guy has never Plus, you can get lost. free shipping and free returns. What are you waiting for? As a prosecutor or defense, uh, he lost... Uh, last time he lost a case was in 1969. Welcome to the Audio Renaissance Tapes presentation of How to Argue and Win Every Time. Written by Jerry Spence. Adapted for audio and produced by Tony Hutz. And now, here is Jerry Spence. Hello. Hello. Argument is my profession. Arguments are the hammers and the nails by which I have, for over 40 years, constructed winning cases for my clients. I believe, as Native Americans believe, that the greatest gift is the gift of learning. Sending this to my band. I mean, my uh, business partner. Where'd it go? Oh, no, no. That the greatest gift is the gift of learning, and that that gift is not complete until it's passed on. My dream, therefore, is to share with you what I've learned about argument. Otherwise, I fear that all the pain, the self-doubt, the fear, the failures I've experienced in learning how to make the winning argument will be wasted. Argument is the affirmation of our being. It's the principal instrument of human intercourse. Without argument, the species would perish. We must argue to help, to warn, to lead, to love, to create, to learn, to enjoy justice, to be. The art of arguing is the art of living. We argue because we must, because life demands it, because at last life itself is but an argument. Argument is indeed an art. There is a technique to it, a mindset. But everyone, every breathing person can make the winning argument in the kitchen, in the bedroom, the courtroom, the boardroom, at work, anywhere. I argue that the powerful argument comes not from disavowing our divine uniqueness in favor of someone else's style or values, but from tapping into the wondrous well of our own personhood. Why do we fail to win when we argue? The enemy is not the other against whom our failing arguments are made. The fault is not our wee voices or unimposing presences. We do not fail to make a persuasive argument because we lack electric genius or lightning wit. We do not fail because we possess but a sparse fund of words. Jerry we fail to make the successful argument because we affix certain locks to How ourselves. To argue locks that imprison time. our arguments. Locks that bar us from assuming a successful stance or from adopting a winning method. The method of this program is to identify the locks from time to time and to offer the key with which to unlock them. The lock is, of course, your lock. But you also possess the key. I have fashioned this program itself as an argument, an argument that identifies the disabling lock and provides the enabling key. The structure I've devised here reflects my method of communicating with people in the courtroom and out, at work and at home. It has been developed and refined over a lifetime in which I have been a worker, a prosecutor, a trial lawyer, a husband, and a father. Let us begin then to learn both to argue and not to argue, to combat the powers of others and to empower ourselves to recognize our fear and to overcome it, to create, to sing, and to let our souls run free. 
Let us proceed with unrestrained passion in our play. Together let us learn how to argue and how to win every time. We begin by learning to open the doors and free the psyche. We begin by simply asking the question, why argue? And this is the first lock. I don't like to argue, and I don't like people who do. So why not try to get along? Besides, when I argue, I lose. Let's see here. Remember, we were born to make the winning argument. We don't need the silver hair and the booming voice of the great orator. We can speak quietly in our kitchens and win. We don't need speech lessons. We don't need the vocabulary of a Harvard professor. We can speak with our employers of our children in ordinary English and win. But locked in our psychic closets, we can never make a winning argument. Sometimes we've been locked in our closets by parents and teachers. Sometimes we've locked ourselves in. It makes no difference. The doors are locked just the same. How did we get so bound up, so hunkered down, so mute? From the moment we were born, we've been conditioned to avoid confrontation. If we opened our tiny mouth to cry, a bottle was hastily used to muffle our cries. We've been taught as puppies are taught, don't bark. Parents and teachers and preachers and priests have unleashed immense pressures upon us. They've forced us to accept their ways, their religion, their philosophy, their values, their conventions, their politics, their wisdom. The power of community norms creates boundaries of mind and spirit that stand intolerant of challenge. Early on, we've been molded into walking, lumbering, laboring, mostly trouble-free machinery. We've learned it's better to conform than to be. Argue? How dare we argue? But the human spirit is like the dandelion growing in the garden. Chopped off at the ground, it will spring back up from a single hair root. The trick is to discover our own hair root, to cherish it. That blessed, succulent, amputated little root that's searching for the sun. That's me. That's you. That's us. And how? The key to our freedom is embarrassingly obvious. Here's the key. We need only give ourselves permission, our permission to peer out of our closets, step out, look around, ask questions, demand respect, share our creativity and ideas, to speak out, search for love, seek justice, to be. This is the lock. I'm afraid to argue. It just causes trouble. How can we argue with people we love? How can we alienate our families, aggravate and anger our friends, our fellow workers, our employers? You only lose when you argue. Our experience affirms that. Silence is safe. This fear that so disables us, how do we deal with it? Here's the key. Fear is our ally. Fear confirms us. Fear is energy that is convertible to power, our power. Fear is friend and foe alike, adversary and ally. Fear is painful, yet it challenges me. It energizes my senses. In the presence of fear, I become alert. I have learned not to be ashamed of my fear, but to embrace it. One cannot be brave without it, for is not our bravery merely the facing of our fear? Fear confirms that at my heart core, life, not death, is the authority. The dead are not afraid. Fear is the painful affirmation of my being. 
to affirm myself is to experience the courage to make the argument. For all arguments begin with me. To affirm myself is, as Paul Tillich once argued, the courage to be. Once we have embraced fear, once we have felt it, accepted it, we have also proclaimed the imperative, I am. And the argument may now begin. Argument springs out of our authority. It escapes from us as our thought and feeling, as our sounds, our music, our rhythms. When we give ourselves permission, the argument bursts out of our lungs, out of our throats, out of the words formed and caressed by our lips, out of the words born of our hearts. When we give ourselves permission, we rediscover our will to win. This is the lock. But I'm not like the great orators or preachers. I have no talent for argument. Here's the key. You have a power of your own that no one else can ever match. We have become focused not on how to identify our own uniqueness, but how to strive for sameness and work hard at imitation. Be like John Wayne or Lincoln or Jesus or Michael Jordan. At least wear the brand of shoes he wears. At least eat his cereal. But why do we imitate others' ways of thinking, accept their values, strive for their goals and power? Why do we relinquish our own authority to a church, to a political party, a creed, or an employer? By seeking to become like them, do we not cast aside that which makes us valuable beyond all comprehension? The perpetual quest for acceptance as part of the social machinery is a form of psychic self-destruction. I am repulsed at the thought of our need to conform to give up that which distinguishes us from all of the others. How can one argue at all if one does not argue from one's own authority? When we imitate another, we murder ourselves, and thus dead are as powerless as the dead. As the imitators, we are fakes, and the counterfeit is valueless. When my argument begins with me, when it emanates from my authority, it will bear the fingerprint of my personhood. That print, like my physical fingerprint, is distinguishable from all others in the history of the world. The key to the winning argument is to understand that and to believe it. The great quest is to find the individual soul print, the singular stamp that belongs only to us. This is the lock. Why should anyone listen to me? Here's the key. You are your own authority. That's enough. In this country, we repose a certain faith in the wisdom of the common man, for the common man is familiar with life in ways in which many of us are ignorant. Wisdom usually does not fall from high places. The mighty and the splendid have taught me little. I have learned more from my dogs than from all the great books I've read. The wisdom of my dog is the product of his inability to conceal his wants. When he yearns to be loved, there is no pouting in the corner. There are no games. He puts his head on my lap, wags his tail, and waits to be petted. No professor ever told me I might live a more successful life if I simply asked for love when I needed it. Instacart makes it easy to shop all your weekly groceries. 
and other essentials. So you never miss a minute of the game. When you build your online store with GoDaddy, it's easy to sell everywhere your customers shop. List and sync products on your website with online marketplaces to create multiple listings at the same time. Track orders and inventory across channels to avoid overselling. Plus, oh, make sure. The world is overburdened with those ashamed of my fear, but to embrace it. One cannot be brave without it, for is not our bravery merely the facing of our fear? Fear confirms that at my heart core, life, not death, is the authority. The dead are not afraid. Fear is the painful affirmation of my being. To affirm myself is to experience the courage to make the argument, for all arguments begin with me. To affirm myself is, as Paul Tillich once argued, the courage to be. Once we have embraced fear, once we have felt it, accepted it, we have also proclaimed the imperative, I am. And the argument may now begin. Argument springs out of our authority. It escapes from us as our thought and feeling, as our sounds, our music, our rhythms. When we give ourselves permission the argument bursts out of our lungs, out of our throats, out of the words formed and caressed by our lips, out of the words born of our hearts. When we give ourselves permission, we rediscover our will to win. This is the lock. But I'm not like the great orators or preachers. I have no talent for argument. Here's the key. You have a power of your own that no one else can ever match. We have become focused not on how to identify our own uniqueness, but how to strive for sameness and work hard at imitation. Be like John Wayne or Lincoln or Jesus or Michael Jordan. At least wear the brand of shoes he wears. At least eat his cereal. But why do we imitate others' ways of thinking, accept their values, strive for their goals and power, why do we relinquish our own authority to a church, to a political party, a creed, or an employer? By seeking to become like them, do we not cast aside that which makes us valuable beyond all comprehension? The perpetual quest for acceptance as part of the social machinery is a form of psychic self-destruction. I am repulsed at the thought of our need to conform, to give up that which distinguishes us from all of the others. How can one argue? at all if one does not argue from one's own authority. When we imitate another, we murder ourselves, and thus dead are as powerless as the dead. As the imitators, we are fakes, and the counterfeit is valueless. When my argument begins with me, when it emanates from my authority, it will bear the fingerprint of my personhood. That print, like my physical fingerprint, is distinguishable from all others in the history of the world. 
The key to the winning argument is to understand that and to believe it. The great quest is to find the individual soul print, the singular stamp that belongs only to us. This is the lock. Why should anyone listen to me? Here's the key. You are your own authority. That's enough. In this country, we repose a certain faith in the wisdom of the common man, for the common man is familiar with life in ways in which many of us are ignorant. Wisdom usually does not fall from high places. The mighty and the splendid have taught me little. I have learned more from my dogs than from all the great books I've read. The wisdom of my dog is the product of his inability to conceal his wants. When he yearns to be loved, there is no pouting in the corner. There are no games. He puts his head on my lap, wags his tail, and waits to be petted. No professor ever told me I might live a more successful life if I simply asked for love when I needed it. The world is overburdened with those who claim to know life's secrets. It's as if I stand on a busy street corner where the great minds of the world and their imitators pass by, all claiming to know the way to Disneyland. Some cannot speak my language. Some are so blinded by their own brilliance they cannot see. Most have never been to Disneyland. The directions some give are incomprehensible. When I ask, how do I get to Disneyland? Some respond by asking me for spare change. Some point in one direction, some in another. How do I know who on this street knows the way? Only when I've traveled to Disneyland myself can I evaluate the directions given me. In the end, I am for me. As you are for you. The only authority. The acceptance of external authority as my overriding authority blocks all discovery of the self. Such acceptance inhibits all growth and mimics death. For no act is more suicidal than casting aside of one's personhood and replacing it with the alien authority of another. This is the lock. But if I am my authority, then aren't they also theirs? How can I win? Here's the key. A winning argument is possible only when, speaking out of our own authority, we address the authority of the others. Successful argument is a communication between the acknowledged authority of both parties to the argument. That I argue concedes to the other the right to argue back. That I speak and wish to be heard admits the other's right to also be heard. But nothing in the bargain suggests that either should surrender his or her authority. I retain the authority as does the other to accept or reject those arguments that are true or not for me. We cannot argue to those who have no authority of their own. Unless the other retains authority, we're arguing to the dead. There should be a sign taped on the refrigerator of every home and on the boss's door in every place of employment. The sign should read, please argue with me. In the end, argument is not always combat conducted with words. Argument is often more like intercourse, an activity that is more satisfying and valuable when both parties join in. Okay, it's time for the big reveal. Da -da -da. <laughs> I can't believe it's only $1.49. I love this chronograph style. Water test time. Seems fine. And a strength test. 
not even a scratch. And it even comes in multiple colorways. I love it so much. Right now, it's on sale for Black Friday. Click here to grab it. When you signed up for pet insurance, you didn't sign up for... Get pet insurance you actually understand. Get Lemonade and sign up for really protecting your four-legged family members. With policies you can customize to suit your pet and your budget, half of claims getting handled instantly and saving up to 90% on vet bills. Sign up for insurance you'll love at Lemonade.com pet. Lemonade, changing insurance, starting with everything. This is the lock. If I argue, I want to win. Here's the key. Ask yourself, what is winning? Is winning when we force the other to lay down his emotional and intellectual arms and surrender? Do we triumph when the other cries out, I was wrong, you win? The old saw, sticks and stones can break your bones, but words will never harm you, is false. Words kill, and words maim. Words of rejection, betrayal, hatred, or denial can destroy as surely as a dagger. Words can cause war. Argument is a tool with which we can achieve an end, satisfy a want, fulfill a desire. Argument is the art by which we can connect and interact successfully with the other. Successful argument, therefore, can never be a verbal bludgeon with which we beat the other into submission and surrender. Winning is getting what we want. And if argument is the means by which we obtain from the other what we want, then we must make room for the notion that argument may take multiple forms. Argument may indeed take the form of contest. It may be hostile and aggressive. It may engage in debate. But the winning argument may also take the form of a love offering, of providing help, of understanding, of cooperating with the other. My wife Imogene has taught me a great deal about the power of love and acceptance in argument. She has taught me how to win an argument without really arguing. I recall when we had just returned from our honeymoon and settled into our new home. The following morning was my first day back at the office. That evening I was about to return home for dinner, one that I knew Imogene had prepared especially for the occasion, when I decided, no, by God, I was not going to go home. I'd been in chronic trouble in a previous relationship for failing to come home on time without realizing it. I was still engaged in a struggle in a relationship that was over. I went to a restaurant where I met a friend. We sat down to talk over a cup of coffee. As the time dragged by, I thought, I'm just entering into this marriage, and I'm going to establish some ground rules the first night home, one of them being that if I'm late for supper, there won't be any damn fuss about it. I drank coffee, and I chatted with my friend until it was over an hour late. And when I came to the door, instead of being met with scolding or silence, I was greeted with a big kiss and a smile. Hi, sweetheart. Your supper's in the oven, she said. I've kept it warm. She set a beautiful dinner before me and sat down to keep me company. I ate an hour ago, she said. I hope your dinner's all right. And that was all the comment there was. No questioning, no complaints, no hostility, nothing but smiles and gentleness. She sat with me and conversed with me while I ate. 
I couldn't believe it. Surely this was just an act. I vowed to give it another test. The next night I again met my friend for coffee. Again I was late an hour. And again I got the same loving treatment when I came home. As I sat down to supper I asked, aren't you even a little mad at me for being late for supper? Of course not, she said. Well, you had supper waiting and I was late and I haven't even said I was sorry. I figured you were busy at the office with important matters, otherwise you'd have come home. Oh, I said, besides you're a full-grown man. Full-grown men don't need someone telling them when to come home to supper. And that's all there was to it. She won our first argument without arguing. And I've never been home intentionally late for supper again in all of the years that we've been married. She understood long before I did that arguments can be won without arguing. She trusted that I would never be late simply to hurt her. I'd been late because it was necessary. She afforded me the presumption of innocence. The power of the mirror, which we shall encounter again and again in this program, began to work. Trust begets trust. And I became trustworthy. I learned again that night what I had learned so many times before and forgotten as often. That demonstrations of love, whether in the kitchen, the bedroom, or the courtroom, are the most powerful of all arguments. Let me offer a new paradigm of argument. Argument may take as many forms as there are arguments to be made and wishes to be fulfilled. In the end, argument is a means by which to bring about change, a change we seek in ourselves or in others. So seen, argument in its multitudinous forms is the most powerful weapon ever devised by man for love or peace or war. Grab the crew and get some birria ramen at Del Taco today. Say hello to Del Taco Better Mix. To argue and win, we must understand power. This is the lock. I'm not a powerful person. Those I face are always more powerful than I. How can I win against them? Here's the key. All power, yours and theirs, is yours. First, what is power? The power peculiar to each of us is that force that distinguishes each of us from all other beings. Our power is our creativity, our joy, our sorrow, our anger, our pain. This energy is our personhood, the extraordinary mix of traits and talents and experiences that make up the fingerprint of our souls. This power belongs to us and only to us. Power is an idea, a perception, a judgment, a thought. This thought. The power I face is always the power I perceive. Let me say it differently. Their power is my perception of their power. Their power is my thought. The source of their power is therefore in my mind. The power others possess is the power I give them. If I have endowed the other with power, that the other does not possess, then I face my own power, do I not? My own power has become my opponent, my enemy. On the other hand, if the other possesses power, but I do not perceive the other's power as effective against me, he has none, none for me. We often encounter opponents who excel where we do not. 
we can squander our time, our energy, all of our power in worrying about our opponent's power, and thus give our power to him. No argument, no matter how skillfully delivered, will change our opponent. The only people we have the power to change are ourselves. I refuse to relinquish any of my power to my opponent. I keep my power. I use it to prepare my case, to care for my client. I have learned to listen to the wee voice that speaks to me saying, you are all right. If you will spend your power in discovering and being who you are, if you will present yourself as genuinely as you can, if you will speak out of your core, out of the innocent center, out of the place where the last remnant of the child abides, from which indeed all true power is born, it will be enough. Then I say one more thing. I hereby give you the power to win. What do we do when parents or teachers or bosses use their power to control or injure us? By understanding power, we can make their power powerless against us. Their threats, their rantings and ragings, their accusations and abuse. What is it about? It is not about their power. It is about their infirmities. Everyone's personality is pockmarked with holes, much like a block of Swiss cheese. A hole may represent a place void of intelligence where wisdom should have filled it. Still another hole may show a paucity of sensitivity, insight, or empathy. We use power to fill the holes of our personality. When a power entity, a judge, for example, has no other personality asset with which to cover over his deficiencies, we will endure instead his ugly exhibitions of raw power. Remember Lord Acton's immortal law, all power corrupts, absolute power tends to corrupt absolutely. Responsibility is a symbiotic twin of power. Neither power nor responsibility can be effectively exercised without the other. They're like a binary star, two ends revolving around a center. The almighty judge is responsible for justice in his court. The all-powerful parent is responsible for the child's growth and welfare. The omnipotent boss is responsible for production at the plant. But the judge cannot obtain justice without lawyers who present him with the facts. The parent cannot form the successful child without the love of the child. And the boss is powerless to achieve production without the respect and aid of his employees. Are we not confronted with a paradox? Is it not apparent that power is finally vested in the powerless? And the power to aid those in power, those who bear their responsibility, is always our power. Do you understand? And when we exercise our power to aid those who have power over us, we vest ourselves with power, do we not? Power is like a pistol with barrels that point in both directions. When one with power pulls the trigger against someone with lesser power, the bullets fly in both directions. One fires in the direction of the intended victim, while the other fires into the person who's pulled the trigger. As a weapon, power has little to offer. It germinates resentment and reaps hatred. It fosters the deep and abiding need for revenge. Power exercised without love releases an adverse karma that returns to defeat us. Where or when, we never know. But it will return with all of its destructive force, with all of its gathered vengeance. Revenge is the bastard child of justice. 
When I was a young lawyer feeling my power, my strategy in a certain case was to attack and destroy every witness the other side put against me. I took on the witnesses, old men with watery eyes, who I knew were just toady company sycophants trying to keep their jobs. I took on the experts, scholarly actors, who I knew were paid witnesses attempting to earn their fees rather than reveal the truth. I took on these witnesses, cut them up, shredded them, and pulverized their pitiful parts. The jury was out about 15 minutes before it returned a verdict against my client. I was just devastated. Hadn't I won every battle? Hadn't I destroyed the witnesses? Hadn't my power on cross-examination been just overwhelming? As the jury was filing out of the courtroom, one of the women approached me. She looked up at me with tears in her eyes. It had obviously been hard for her to turn my severely injured client out of the court with nothing. Mr. Spence, she said quietly, why did you make us hate you so? For many months, her words haunted me. Why did you make us hate you so? Then one day I realized that not only had I destroyed the witnesses, I had maimed them, mocked them, and held them up to the jury in scorn and derision. I had attacked. I attacked everyone in sight, but in the merciless barrage that I leveled in the courtroom, I inadvertently attacked even the jury, for my cruelty forced them to the side of the defense. I had unleashed all of my power. By doing so, I had defeated myself. Power is like gasoline. Spread aimlessly over the landscape, it can result in an inferno. It can cause untold harm. Correctly contained, it can cook supper or transport us to Boston. Power is deceptive, for at times there is no one more powerful than the powerless. The Davids have always been more powerful than the Goliaths, isn't that true? The Rockies more powerful than the Apollo Creeds? The meek, unsullied by power, shall indeed inherit the earth. Remember, our power and our opponent's power is born of ourselves. All power originates from us, only from us. At last we understand, we are power, all of the power. Now let's explore the incredible power of credibility. This is the lock. No one listens to me. Why should they? Who am I? Here's the key. Anyone can be credible, but we must risk telling the truth about ourselves. One can stand as the greatest orator the world has known, possess the quickest mind, employ the cleverest psychology, and have mastered all of the technical devices of argument. But if one is not credible, one might just as well preach to the pelicans. The first trick of the winning argument is the trick of abandoning trickery. Most of us can talk about ourselves a little, and zoom in on our feelings a little, but most of us do not tell much of the truth about ourselves. We hold back our hurt, hold back our anger, hold back our deep dread. We fear to reveal our fear, our joy, our jealousy, our hunger, our ideas, our insecurities, ourselves. Credibility comes out of the marrow of our bones. Great pretenses win nothing. The tears, the unctuous oratory, all are useless if, at last, we have no credibility. 
To win, we must be believed. To be believed, we must be believable. To be believable, we must tell the truth, the truth about ourselves, the whole truth. We must argue from the place where the frightened child abides. We must argue from the place where the whimpers and wailing are held back, where the anger boils, where the monster rises up and screams, where the lover and the saint and the ancient warrior fuse. That is where we must focus, in that rare, rich place, that nucleus of our being. That is the magical place where credibility dwells. Technique has little to do with credibility, and therefore little to do with winning. The most articulate, greasy-lipped lawyer is not able to fool ordinary juries, at least not for long. But my two-year-old grandson, pounding the table with his rattle, is credible. And when he cries, we know he's hungry or tired. Credibility is becoming the child. This is the lock. We are lied to every day by the media, by politicians, by our employers, by everyone. Lying is a way of life. Isn't successful argument merely learning to become an expert liar? We gather to assist Lauren in finding a date that we will all like. Send in the next suitor. Lauren, you got my heart soaring. You serious? Next. Works wonders at clearing the heart chakra. Nope. Hmm. Bio? The only fish you'll see in my hands is sushi. Yeah. Invite friends to find your next date with a new Tinder matchmaker. Here's the key. We can fool the other for a while, but at last their credibility detectors will sense this is not the truth. At that point, every argument is lost. If we could see our psychic selves, we would look like a strange two-legged bug with feelers extending out in every direction. Our psychic tentacles wrap themselves around the speaker, palpate him, measure him, test him. The feelers form an alarm system we all possess that measures and values all that is said and heard and seen. We communicate not only with words, but with the sound of words and their rhythms. We speak with silences. We speak with physical words, the way we pose and stand or move. Like our immune systems, our invisible credibility detectors are constantly searching for the enemy, for the thin clank of the counterfeit, a sound that is wrong, a word that is inappropriate, a look, a movement that does not quite fit. I'm not speaking of intelligence here. Both the genius and the everyday person have such detectors. I'm not speaking of intuition or some magical, mystical, far-off concept. I am speaking of the psychic mechanism by which we can recognize the ring of truth and protect ourselves from those who invade us with pretense and deceit. This is the lock. Don't tell me a person can't be fooled. I've been taken in more than once. And here's the key. Everyone has. But when we're taken in, our credibility detectors have usually been overridden by our wants. Yes, we can be fooled. But the signs, the signals, the alarms were all there to be seen and heard if we simply looked and listened. We want to believe the anchorman on the evening news. We want to trust our neighbors, friends, and business associates. We want to believe we are loved. 
We want to get rich quickly. We want more than we want to pay attention to our credibility detectors. I do not argue here that we should distrust all who come before us. I argue only that we should look and that we should listen. The ability to listen and to see must be twice as important as the ability to speak. Else why would God have given us two eyes and two ears and only one mouth? This is the lock. I try to tell the truth most of the time, but people don't take me as seriously as I wish they would. Something's missing. Here's the key. Openly revealing our feelings establishes credibility. For we are what we feel. Our willingness to openly reveal our feelings in our argument nearly always builds our credibility. Many of us refuse to express our feelings because we fear we may become angry. But often our anger shields fear. Our child's conduct may make us angry, but we are afraid our child will get into serious trouble. Our boss's hiring policy may cause us to rage. But behind it, we're afraid the boss's policy will put our job in jeopardy. Argument may be combat, and like any combat, it ultimately gives rise to fear. Our fear of losing the argument and the resulting consequences of our loss. This is the lock. Acting. That's what I think argument is really about. You're either a good actor or you're not. I never was good at acting. Here's the key. Acting is simply revealing the truth. Let me say it again. Acting is simply revealing the truth. And to be a good actor, one must be credible. Acting is being. True acting is never pretending. It is instead the process of revealing the truth of the character in the situation in which he finds himself. Acting requires the actor to get in touch with the truth of his feelings, his anger, his joy, his surprise, his sorrow, his pain. When Al Pacino played the blind army officer in Scent of a Woman, he was blind in his mind. He didn't pretend to be blind. When he was deep into his performance, he lost the ability to see. However, unlike an actor, when we argue, we do not have the luxury of rehearsing our performance until it is flawless. We can't ask our wives or employers to disregard our last three performances and to stand by until we get it right. If we are pretending, no matter how skillfully and convincingly, at some point the other will perceive that something is awry. At that moment, we have lost the argument. We are believed and the other convinced because we tell the truth about the facts we know and the feelings we experience. This is the lock. So how do I tell the truth? Maybe I don't know how. We've been admonished from childhood to tell the truth and assured that honesty is the best policy. Yet we've learned that when we tell the truth, we are often penalized. If we tell the truth about the wrong we've committed, be it ever so petty and innocent, we're punished. If we reveal our yearnings, we are mocked. If we admit our love, we're rejected. If we reveal our anger, our opponents strike back with anger. We learn to shy from the truth. Here's the key. Learn to speak as if you're naked. We must all learn to disrobe our psyches. We wear our psychic clothes so we can conceal who we are. We have become a society that rewards not who we are, but how we appear. 
It is more important to look good than to be good. Our image, as opposed to our substance, is presented and marketed like so many nicely packaged peaches at the supermarket. And what we see is not what we get at the supermarket or elsewhere. We are so confused, so confounded by our own disguises and others that we no longer know who anyone is. Sometimes when I'm seriously struggling to discover how I feel, I imagine that I've stripped off all of my clothes and that I'm standing naked before my audience. Sometimes the fear of it seems too much. But I know that behind our psychic shrouds lies the great power of credibility that permits us all to argue, to be heard, to be understood, and to win. This is the lock. If I tell the truth, if I tell the other what I really want, I'll suffer from it. I've already learned that. If we tell our neighbor that we want his land, the price goes up. If we express our true desire to the opposite sex, well, we can be in a lot of trouble. We all know that. But here's the key. Revealing our honest desires, asking for what we want, makes it very difficult for the other to refuse us. When we honestly communicate our wants to the other, we exercise a great power. People don't want to say no, not to us, not to our face, not when we have plainly asked for what we want, not when our request is reasonable, not when it is just. When Imogene and I were in London, we visited Bermondsey Market, where the farmers brought their produce to sell each day. The street was lined with carts and booths. As we walked along, one old grizzled salesman hollered out, Buy me vegetables, sir. I need the money. Before I realized what I was doing or why, I'd walked up to the old boy and bought a bundle of carrots. I wasn't hungry. I'm not even very fond of raw carrots. I made the purchase captivated by the ring of truth, by the plain, simple, winning argument of the old man. He didn't tell me how fresh or how helpful his carrots were. He just told the truth. He needed the money. Because he communicated truthfully and openly, he was credible. Because he was credible, I bought his forthright argument not to mention his carrots. The form and content of the winning argument may stem from the logical, intellectual, linear progeny of the mind. But the energy, the power, the stuff that excites and moves, that makes us credible and eventually convinces, is born of the soul. Because an argument from the soul is truthful, it bears the ring of truth. It's credible. Ah, the power of the honest, who will but tell us what they want. Ah, the power of the honest, who will but tell us who they are. Hey, thanks for always getting me to try new things and basically being my forever high person. Now I want you to know about the power of listening. This is the lock. They argue, and I argue back, but I never seem to win. Here's the key. Listen. Just listen, and you'll start to win. If I were required to choose the single most essential skill from the many that make up the art of argument, it would be the ability to listen. Listening is the ability to hear what people are saying, or not saying, as distinguished from the words they enunciate. 
If we step into the kitchen where a couple is engaged in a typical domestic shouting match, if we listen, we will often discover that all of the noise is nothing more than evidence of a desperate need to be heard. For if we are never heard, if we are never understood, if we are never loved, we find ourselves alone, even when we are with someone. In short, there is usually a need to be heard behind the racket, usually pain behind the rage. I see Van Gogh, who in his desperation to be heard, first cut off his ear, and when still no one heard him, put the pistol to his head. When we hear the shouting, the anger, both ours and the others, if we are skilled listeners, we will step back to hear not the tirade, but the weeping. Not the belligerent racket, but the loneliness, the disappointment, the fear beneath the noise. This is a time to quietly ask a simple question. What pain drives this cacophony? How can we hear what is really being said? By listening to the soul's ear. Let the soul's ear tell us what it hears, then trust it. I'm not speaking here of something mystical. I'm merely giving full faith and credit to the vast storehouse of knowledge which we were born with and have gathered in a lifetime. As we proceed through life, our reservoir of knowledge fills gradually, steadily, imperceptibly. Words are chosen, but how they come together, the syntax, the tone, the inflection with which the others flavor the words, carry more information about what is being said and who is saying it than the words themselves we have the ability to call upon the mind's reservoir instantly to sort through the billions of items of information stored there, to select that which is relevant to our decision and to present the decision in the form of a feeling. We are taught to be logical and to demand proof, but the conscious, logical mind can only gather a few facts, wrestle with only a few concepts. The soul's ear listens to whole libraries of data, from which it instantly constructs its bottom line, the feeling. The soul's ear hears. We can tune into it and hear its wisdom. Also, if we listen, we can hear the music that carries the words of those who speak to us. Everyone plays a certain music with their personal musical instrument, the vocal cords. Do they play alive, happy sounds or sad and depressed ones? Is the voice strong and affirmative, or weak and tentative? Do we hear music, or the sound of a monotonous machine? Do the sounds we hear match the words? Sounds from the voice are like light that is shown through a filter. The light takes on the color of the filter, and the sounds of the person take on the substance of the person who authors them. Sometimes when I am listening to the final argument of my opponent, I lay my head back, close my eyes, and let the words drift by and focus only on the sounds. The sounds always carry the argument better than the words. The sounds betray the urgency, the sense of caring, the anger, the ring of truth, the power that can change the jury. If the sounds of the words, no matter how powerful the words may be, do not move me, they'll not move the jury either. Sounds carry the meaning. It is only when the sounds penetrate and prod and awaken that I take a note for rebuttal. We may also listen with our eyes. People speak to us with body language, words heard with the eyes. 
bodies reflect fear and boredom and interest and repulsion and openness and attraction and caring and hatred. And the easiest way to discover what the body language of another is telling us is for us to mimic the other and then ask ourselves how we are feeling when we take on the other's body's position. For instance, if we see a person listening to another with his index finger pressed firmly against his lips, we can put our own finger in the same position. When we do, we realize that with our finger hard against our mouths, we are warning ourselves to remain silent and to listen attentively. One can also listen with the eyes by observing what the other's dress is saying to us. What about the flashy tie? A touch of the maverick, perhaps? I know a woman who wears old sloppy bib overalls and a t-shirt for every occasion, even a formal affair. What does that tell us about the woman? We can listen with the eyes by observing the way people walk. Do they slump? Is there a sprightly bounce, a swagger? When I'm in court, I always have an associate keep notes so that I am freed to watch the jurors walk to the jury box. The manner in which jurors carry themselves is a stamp life has placed upon them. I see people shuffle, slither, slink, creep, glide, tiptoe. The way people move is their autobiography in motion. This is the end of side one. Please turn over the tape for proper cueing of side two.